0: Out of Austin, Texas, you're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean.
1: All right. We are here. It is Friday night on Fourth of July weekend. And you are at the conclusion, actually. We are at the end of our road. It has been 17 days of readings. If you can believe it, we are finally at the afterword. And this is the end, the conclusion of Willful Blindness: How a Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and CCP Agents Infiltrated the West. It has been quite the ride, let me tell you. So we learned a lot. I mean, stuff I didn't even know, but it did pull a lot of the chords together about why things happen the way that they happen. So, I mean, yes, it's corrupt. Yes, there was gaslighting. But boy, did it really explain a lot. You know, the fact that people are saying things a certain way and doing exactly nothing about known crime in the apparent, like, happening all around, no one saying anything, willful blindness. So that's happening all over the Pacific Northwest, and people are like, why, why is this just being allowed? So now you know, somebody's getting a payoff, and it extends to Seattle and San Francisco and the whole left coast. So everybody be getting paid And the criminals are paying the politicians and those politicians are working their policies and pro-criminal laws into effects so that their drug dealers and their criminal enterprises continue and uh, uninterrupted, like nobody's obstructing the human trafficking, the gangs, the drug crime, the money laundering. Nobody's obstructing that. They're they're obstructing justice actually. And they're betraying their oath of office, etc., etc. All the all the poisonous things that happen when you forego the public good in exchange for cash. So, um, so we are here afterward. This is called infinite connectivity. So the party is not squeamish about using any tool if they can catch someone doing something illegal. They will trade off a harsh sentence, perhaps a death sentence, in exchange for the criminal's compliance, Mulroney said. They hold this over the heads of the people they are trying to co-opt. Paul King Jin pulled back his black Mercedes van up to Manzo Sushi Restaurant after 7 p.m. It was an unusually warm evening for September in Richmond. Jin's party had reserved a private section. Jin walked towards his business partner, 44-year-old Jian Jun Zhu, and greeted him warmly. They had come so far together in Canada, Zhu the younger man from Hong Kong and Jin the boxing hero from Shandong. While Jin was older and supremely confident in public, some observers believed Zhu was more powerful. After all, on paper release, Zhu and his wife ran Silver International, the underground bank laundering more than $1 billion annually with Chinese, Latin American, and Iranian drug cartels. And when Zhu and Jin met each other, the younger man would put his arm on Jin's shoulder in almost a fatherly way, a hint about who had the clout. Unlike Paul King Jin, with his boxing gym and his stable of illegal casinos in Richmond, John Jun Zhu had slipped off the radar after the e-pirate raids. Zhu had returned to Hong Kong and he spent time in South Africa and Dubai. He finally flew back to Canada in summer of 2020, first to Toronto before flying home to Vancouver. So here they were together again on September 18th, 2020 in a party of 12 people preparing to celebrate. It was a formidable array of international criminals, and really, the men gathered in Manzo underlined an improbable fact. Canada had become a a command center for the world's most prolific Chinese transnational narcos. Scrolling over Manzo's location with drone footage would help illustrate how it happened. Near the east bank of the Fraser River, Manzo was just a four-minute drive from 5811 Cooney Road the office tower where Silver International had stockpiled drug cash until an RCMP tactical unit rushed through its bulletproof glass doors in October 2015. In the same downtown tower, Vincent Ramos and Phantom Secure had an office before the FBI busted Ramos in 2018 and flipped him on Cameron Ortiz. And at 5811 Cooney Road, Joe pesci Soledo his law office was located one door away from the third floor office that silver would later occupy down at street level at cooney road and westminster highway within a radius of 500 meters a heat map of currency exchange shops real estate
0: out of Austin, texas you're listening to the unsanctioned citizen podcast here's your host sheila dean
1: e-pirate surveillance records case in point one summer morning in 2015 an undercover officer was set up to watch for silver customers arriving in the parquet at a 5811 cooney he took note when black land, when a Blackland land rover <laughs> pulled in and a man and woman in, entered the office tower he ran the license plate and got a stunning hit the vehicle was registered to one of xi jinping's most wanted a politically connected Vancouver real estate developer of great interest to China's intelligence operatives in British Columbia. Vancouver International Airport was a seven-minute drive from Manzo, just across the Fraser River. The Water Cube's massage club, the business run by Jin's bosses in Beijing and Qingdao and Guangzhou, was about a five-minute drive from Manzo. I had found the Water Cube on a Chinese state online record. They called it a state accessory company. But RCMP records documented a constant stream of bags and suitcases full of cash traveling in and out along the reports of high-level drug traffickers and underage masseuses and illegal casino payments inside the premises. Two Minutes from Manzo was a strip mall with an array of gun shops, including West Coast Hunting, a business run by RCMP Targets from northern China. This is where the RCMP tailed or trailed Jen and one of his bodyguards and accused drug trafficker as they lugged out a gun safe. This was during E-Pirate. And In a spin-off investigation, RCMP followed another of Jen's associates, an accused weapons trafficker, later caught with buckets of fentanyl precursors to the business, and River Rock Casino, with its luxury hotel rooms where Big Circle Boys stockpiled casino chips for the whales arriving from Hong Kong, Beijing, and Macau, and was only a three-minute drive from Manzo. Manzo. An eight-minute drive from east from Manzo into Richmond's farmland would take you past many sprawling mansions with their Roman columns and marble floors and vineyards and spas. Inside, Chinese officials could gamble and enjoy young women and dine on shark fin and bear paw soup, just like they had done in the 1990s in Lai Chongqing's Red Palace in Xiamen. A seven-minute drive west from Manzo would wind through the streets of the cookie-cutter, iron-gate, three-car garage mansions that concealed innumerable meth and fentanyl labs. These tiny labs with their rotary pill presses were all part of an interconnected machine invisibly ducted into Chinese chemical factories. In a five-minute drive, from these neighborhoods of mansion labs, the dingy warehouses and storage lockers in the blocks on both sides of the Fraser, buildings that received containers of fake Nikes shipped from factories in the Pearl River Delta, along with piles of chemical precursors. Canada's western port was the transshipment point for hundreds of millions of lethal little pills going out to Australia and Japan and coming into North America. And the import-export businesses housed in these riverfront streets had capacity to seamlessly recycle all the drug cash into China's industrial production. So if the Sinaloa cartel wanted their Vancouver cocaine sale proceeds converted to pesos, they knew where to go. A quick phone call and cash drop to a Richmond textile merchant would produce a shipload of Gucci suit knockoffs in Guangdong. The clothing would be shipped to Mexico and sold for the cartel. Paces would be banked, and of course, the containers of clothing shipped to Manzanillo would also carry fentanyl and methamphetamine precursors for Sinaloa cartel labs. My sources in Ottawa said the Chinese underground bankers were charging the Mexican cartels little or nothing for laundering their drug cash. They didn't have they didn't have to because they were making incalculable sums from the trade-based money laundering opportunities coming out of drug money laundering contracts, the implication was obvious. China's mercantilism could not be separated from global drug trafficking and money laundering. So this is the dystopia that Canada's leaders are confronted with. What Gary Clement and Brian McAdam and Michael Juno Katsuya had tried to warn Ottawa of in the 1990s had come to pass, narco-communism. Canada, specifically Richmond, B.C. and Markham, Ontario, had become a beachhead for mainland China's opioid cartels. And and the events at Manzo that night demonstrate this frightening truth. After talking to Zhu for a minute, Jin stood and walked to another table. Zhu's head was inches from a tinted window, separating diners from the parking lot outside. Suddenly, glass exploded into the restaurant. Six bullets sliced through the window at an angle, rocky zoo in his seat. It's amazing what can happen when bullets, bullets and shards of glass start bouncing around. Jin was hit with, a sh- with shrapnel that ripped through his left cheek and exited near his nose. He crouched over, holding his face as his blood dripped to the floor. A bodybuilder in Jin's party snapped a cell phone picture as a woman consoled Jin. Police cars... And an ambulance arrived within minutes. Zhu was rushed to the hospital and declared dead. But Jin was released from the hospital with no more damage than a hole in his cheek. Within days, Jin was seen at Zhu's funeral. Observers counted five bodyguards surrounding him. Police were stunned by the shooting in many ways. There were families with children dining at Manzo. Children easily could have been hit with the ricocheting bullets and glass, but only Zhu died. Was he the only target? Was Jin the intended target? There was much to consider. Jin had arrived and briefly talked to Zhu and then walked away just before shots smashed into the restaurant. Who would dare target Zhu or Jin? There was no question for RCMP experts about who dominated organized crime in Canada. Of course, it was the Chinese transnational cartels. They had the most members in Canada, the underground banking and drug routes, infiltration of trade and protected bases of operation inside China. But make no mistake, our experts saw men like Jian Junzu and Paul King Jin as nothing more than mid-level criminal bankers. Men at their level managed underground drug, drug labs and casinos and piles of chemicals and drug cash. They invested in chemical precursor imports and money laundering infrastructure, casinos, cash houses, construction, and development companies with their bosses. They were the hands of investors. Their bosses were silent partners, but they all responded to guidance from Beijing. If they didn't, they were out of business, and from my sources, I knew that sensitive and classified reports forwarded to the highest levels of RCMP intelligence in Ottawa assessed that men like Paul King Jin were handled by Chinese intelligence operatives living in British Columbia. Think about that, when people ask why I have chosen to focus on Chinese transnational cartels in Canada, that's the answer. I'm following the money and the power and the greatest threat to Canadian society. It's not other crime groups, domestic and foreign, get a pass, but I recognize the unique threat posed by state-sponsored crime. Back to Manso. I asked my sources what kind of theories were circulating in the RCMP. Who was behind the shooting? Probably someone with the blessing of Beijing, one expert said. This was a common theory in federal policing circles. One thing that was abundantly obvious is that this wasn't the standard tit for tat, dial a shootout that periodically rocks Vancouver. This was violence among the fentanyl kingpins, the controllers of the world's chemical narcotics trade. The fact that someone had put a contract on Sue or Jen. Or both was mind boggling enough. For me, it was almost unbelievable. Paul Jen had seemed untouchable. This was September 2020. Three years had passed since September 2017 when I first informed Canadians about ePirate and Jen and the Vancouver model. And for three years, month by month, I had learned more about how Jen's loan sharking network connected with almost every mysterious offshore real estate investor that I had been digging to in Vancouver. My link charts were expanding all the time, and ever since I had confirmed connections between Jin and RCMP suspect 2, Rong sorry, the general Yuan, I was increasingly seeing a pattern that Canadians needed to hear about. The ePirate network had incredible political connectivity in China and Canada. Sources and documents said they bragged about having special relationships with Canadian officials. But now, the extreme violence I had always heard was associated with Paul Jin. Despite many politicians and Chinese officials surrounding him, it was undeniable. It was as graphic as the photo taken from inside Manzo, showing Jin's blood dripping through his hands. There was a feeling that my investigations had come full circle. Money laundering in Vancouver equaled violence and death. No one could argue against that now. But I also realized there is no way to end a book like this, because every drug deal, every shooting, every illegal casino bust highlights new connectivity. I would never stop being shocked. The Manzo shooting is is a perfect example for experts who construct link charts to decipher the intricate bonds of trust among mainland Chinese cartels shipping opioids across six continents. Jen's dinner party guest list was a bit like Rosetta Stone. As one well-placed source put it, the list demonstrated mind-blowing connectivity between the E-Pirate targets, Sam Gore's commanders, and the United Front Work Department. Video evidence from inside Manzo showed two men from Markham with Jen. One of them is the gang boss next in command to Chelop C. This transnational narco who has been trafficking drugs in Toronto and Vancouver for decades is Chilopsy's apparent successor. He has handled Sam Gore's business in Canada since Chilopsy left Markham. Some speculate that with increased media exposure on Chilopsy, the new Markham boss may have assumed active command of the company. Sees plans to fly to Toronto in December 2020 before Dutch police nabbed him for extradition to Australia, raise a lot of intriguing questions. Sources who confirmed Cheelopsi's deputy was in Jin's party at Manzo asked that his name not be published in this book. He is a top target for the Five Eyes Law Enforcement Group. And along with Cheelopsi, he's viewed by the U.S. State Department as a top-tier national security threat, the sources said. It would be very easy to surmise that Paul Jen has connectivity to Sam Gore, a source told me. But we had never seen it. This is the first time we ever saw Jen together with Sam Gore. So what is going on in Manzo that night is totally fitting with the Five Eyes targeting of Sam Gore. So what was this meeting about? One RCMP theory is celebration of the completion of a major drug trafficking contract. Paul Jen's lawyer didn't respond to my request for comment on the events at Manzo and the totality of current and historic police allegations against him. And the appearance of a second gang boss from Markham and Manzo was another shocking confirmation of connectivity between Richmond and Markham for the RCMP. This was the Sam Gore associate who had led York Regional Police gang units to a 53 bedroom mansion believed to be the largest ever. Illegal casino discovered in Canada. An investigation called O Cyber identified this man and wound through a network of underground casinos in northeast Toronto. Finally, on a hot night in July 2020, gang police in tactical gear and pandemic safety masks raided the network's alleged mothership. The 10 million compound at 5 De Courcy Court. With its neo-Italiante architecture, a terraced restaurant and manicured gardens it looked like a carbon copy of the Richmond Farmland Casinos run by Paul Jen and his e-pirate bosses. Only about five times larger, police made 45 arrests and seized 11 guns with ammunition and $1 million in cash. The number one target, an associate of the, the two Sam Gore suspects that had dined with Paul Jen at Manzo. Weiwei, a 52-year-old real estate developer from from Anhui province with ties to elite Chinese officials, was charged, along with his wife, for running the operation. Weiwei owns a number of properties across Canada and controls many real estate holding and development companies, police information, and corporate records, showed me. York police said that they were stunned by his network sophistication and brazenness. He appeared to be running a parallel underground economy in broad daylight, with absolute disregard for Canada's laws and sovereignty. The polar bear mount, displayed beside a large Chinese flag and the 5 de Courcy Grand entrance hall, sent a message about the authority that Wei heeded. He also runs a state-connected construction conglomerate in China, I found, which indicates he has blessings in Beijing. And sources told me there were reports of Chinese officials in Tycoon flying into Canada and gambling in Wei's Mansions of Pleasures. Police alleged all 53 rooms were used for illegal business. Baccarat tables at 5 de Courcy took 20,000 maximum bets. Detectives believe young women were trafficked for sex inside the mansion's illegal hotel facilities. Meanwhile, in total breach of COVID-19 restrictions, An unlicensed restaurant, complete with maitre d', served high-end delicacies such as sharpened soup to families with children. Police sources told me Wave's businesses were supersized during the coronavirus pandemic, monopolizing high-roller action, while Ontario government casinos were forced to close, and police believe the casinos generated huge profits to fund drug deals and human trafficking. There was huge connectivity to B.C. casino money laundering, sources said. E-Pirate whales traveled to Markham and Toronto. Toronto whales traveled to Richmond. And Paul Jin's criminal conviction and charge sheet was an excellent map for the underground casino and loan sharking and human trafficking and sexual exploita- exploitation loops between B.C. and Ontario and China. Jen has massage spas in Toronto and Richmond, and in 2001, in Markham, he had an assault charge withdrawn. In 2008, in Richmond, he was convicted convicted of sexual assault and sexual exploitation. Back in Toronto in 2009, he was convicted of aggravated assault, and in Toronto that year, he had an assault with weapon charge withdrawn. Clearly, after 2008, Richmond was the bigger market for Jen's activity. But Markov's cut of the drug cash laundering had evidently increased in 2018 after B.C. Attorney General David Eby cracked down on the massive cash buy-ins flooding B.C. Lottery Corp. casinos. That drug cash has, has to go somewhere, our NRCMP source told me. Weiwei's political ties were another source of amazement for my sources. He had met with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at two intimate Chinese state-sponsored events in Toronto. At one of these meetings, Weiwei represented the China Cultural Industry Association, along with an elite Chinese United Front Work Department official who donated $1 million to Trudeau's Family Foundation. And Weiwei himself is a leader of the Toronto United Front Group, started by the United Front Work Department in Anhui. And the United Front ties between Markham and Richmond were just as illuminating as the casino ties. Wei Wei was there in Vancouver in 2018 with Chinese consular officials to celebrate the United Front's promotion of another real estate developer from Anhui, Yang Tao Chen. Chen was made chairman of Canada's controlling level United Front Group with Chinese Consul General Tong Xiaoling and her consular United Front officials there to give Beijing's seal of approval. This was two years before Yang Tao Chen spearheaded the United Front's PPE collection operation in BC under Tong Xiaolin, and these Xiaoling, sorry, they're not Shaolin, Xiaoling, and it is these same consular United Front officials, they're all United Front, my sources were interested in more than United Front connections between Weiwei Wei and Yang Tao Chen. Corporate records show that Weiwei Wei and his wife, Yang Tao Chen, among the directors... You'll have to wait until after the readings, guys. Um, corporate records show that Weiwei Wei and his wife and Yang Tao Chen were among the directors of an Ontario-numbered company that bought two Toronto-area hotels in December of 2017 for $75 million. Yang Tao Chen did not respond to my questions about these facts and sued for defamation after I reported on his business ties to Wei. And Wei, who faced 21 charges, including the illegal operation of a betting house, possession of weapons for dangerous purpose, and possession of proceeds of crime, did not respond either. I was informed. The RCMP continues to investigate Wei. But in a stunning development, In May of twenty twenty one, the Crown reportedly withdrew all York police charges against Wei amid allegations that a corrupt officer pocketed three hundred thousand dollars Patek Philippe watch, a a Patek Philippe watch and a one hundred and fifty thousand dollar Jaeger Lecoultre watch that belonged to Wei from evidence seized in his Markham mansion. The charges against another man arrested in the mansion bust remain. And I have yet to be very clear about this. There is no evidence that Yang Tao Chen is involved in criminality. And China vehemently denies the United Front operates inside Canada. How can they do that? Anyways, but what RCMP criminal intelligence reports escalated in Ottawa are concerned with are the business and political connections between men such as Yang Tao Chen and Wei Wei. As one source told me, the problem for Canada is that grassroots community associations meant to support Chinese Canadians have been taken over by Chinese consulate operatives through the United Front. And because of Chinese state interference in Canada, it's very hard to tell where the United Front ends and organized crime starts, a source told me. There are a few conclusions I take away from the Manzo shooting and the Sam Gore and the Markham Casino revelations. Underground banking and trade based money laundering run by transnational gangs connected to the Chinese state is the Canada model, not the Vancouver model. And opioid cartels from across mainland China have merged into super cartels run out of Canada. These cartels have support from the Chinese Communist Party. They are key tools in Xi Jinping's magic weapon. What I'm suggesting is that. This information warrants a national inquiry in Ottawa. The Cullen Commission was underway when this book was published. And in his first interim report, Justin Austin Cullen said he had already seen enough evidence to conclude that money laundering is tearing the fabric of B.C.'s democratic society. This is an affirmation of the exact point that my sources have been hammering into me for years. The problem is worse than Canadians can imagine. What the commission finds remains to be seen, but as I have written in this book, ultimately elite elected officials in Ottawa need to answer for turning a blind eye to warnings in the 1990s. Because with benefits of hindsight, information gathered for a signwinder, the leaked RCMP and CSIS report that appeared to be buried by senior bureaucrats has proven largely correct that it, that's not to say that the draft report didn't contain some flaws. It was far ahead of its time. There may have been some cases of overreach, but it was visionary and it predicted the triads reach into large swaths of Canadian land. Here's an example. Part of my advantage in completing this book in 2021 was the ability to, to look back at Sidewinder's allegations about Chinese tycoons with major real estate development and hotel investment footprints in Vancouver and Toronto. Because offshore investor court battles continue in in the Byzantine and evolving Vancouver Expo real estate development, I found something interesting in 2019 court filings. One Asian investor outed another alleged hidden Hong Kong investor in one Expo land parcel. I found this alleged hidden investor was a River Rock VIP with a penchant for dating Hong Kong starlets. I ran his information in Hong Kong corporate databases and found many connections to the incredibly convoluted real estate and casino and hotel investment corporations of Chang Yutong and Li Kaxing. And I ran his Hong Kong investor's name past Gary Clement. Clement checked in his 1990s Hong Kong dossier. Blingo. Sorry. Bingo. Uh, the Hong Kong investor had sent his corporate employee, who was also a confirmed Sunni-on triad officer, according to Clement's files to Vancouver in the 1990s, seeking real estate and port-developed deals. Sidewinder said that tycoons with connections to heroin triads and the Chinese Communist Party and United Front were gaining a major foothold in Canadian real estate and hotels. And Ottawa's response essentially was to shoot the messengers and ignore their warnings but there is growing recognition from some highly respected former officials that the crime model first exposed in Sidewinder must be confronted. This isn't just some fringe theory cooked up by spoofed secret dossiers. I asked David Mulroney, Canada's former ambassador to Beijing, is Sidewinder's core assertions hold up? Is the Chinese Communist Party actually intertwined with transnational gangs and using criminals in the United Front to fulfill the party's objectives? There is no denying the connection Mulroney told me the course of modern Chinese politics from the earliest days of the Communist Party in Shanghai has been interrelated with the rise and fall of various crime bosses and triads. Mulroney told me that when he was a government official, he could not speak out on his knowledge of the party's ties to gangs, but he believes it is now his duty to inform Canadians of what he learned inside China. The party is not squeamish about using any tool if they can catch someone doing something illegal they will trade off a vicious sentence perhaps a death sentence in exchange for criminals compliance mulroney said they they hold this over the heads of the people they are trying to co-opt there is a very tight incestuous relationship between the organized crime in china and within diaspora communities and the united front co-opting criminal networks is one of the party's preferred tools for the infiltration of target organizations and communities for foreign interference. So what does this mean? At worst, what does China's infiltration of Canada using criminal networks mean? Is there concrete harm? Yes, the harm is tangible and increasing. And at worst, according to multiple well-placed sources, it means Beijing is allowing fentanyl to be shipped into Canada. This is another uncomfortable truth. The Chinese Communist Party has used the threat of fentanyl deaths as leverage on Canada's leaders. Multiple sources with direct knowledge told me that around 2018, Beijing wanted to insert a national security agent into its Vancouver consulate to run Xi Jinping's covert fox hunt operations. And these hunts for economic fugitives like Lai, chan are often thinly veiled intelligence operations before the current frost between us and the ccp china wanted canada to accept another police liaison officer but have that position located in vancouver a source confirmed sorry canada declined so ccp were not happy We knew that their intent is to target expats and other economic refugees, so the CCP held this over us when we went asking for assistance to combat their opioid crisis. I'm still unpacking the implications of this Machiavellian example of China's statecraft. When my sources use words like narco-state, or opium war in reverse, or hostile state activity, or asymmetrical warfare. These are jarring ideas. It's hard to conceptualize, let alone accept, that China intends not only to profit from fentanyl production, but to weaponize it too. But what the sources are ultimately saying is that Chinese, the Chinese regime is purposefully, purposefully using fentanyl against other states like the United States. And they are saying Canadians need to recognize the ruthlessness of Beijing's compact with opioid cartels. Who are these sources? Some are RCMP criminal intelligence, some are current and former CSIS agents, some are the DEA, some are from the United States national security community. One, a former senior US official with knowledge of global narcos and terror financiers, explained how the DEA believes Hezbollah weaponizes drug trafficking against enemy states. They wanna weaken Western cities by flooding in narcotics, increasing addictions and healthcare costs, and using the narco proceeds for guns and bombs. It's profitable for the Iranian regime and deadly for the West. And China's objective with fentanyl seems to be the same, this U.S. source told me. Sources in the RCMP and CSIS agree. Canadian Senator Vernon White of the Parliamentary National Security and Intelligence Committee has a similar perspective. He told me if China wanted to shut down fentanyl production in state-controlled factories, it could easily do it. This is a security threat, White said. If terrorists were killing five, 6,000 people per year, we would do something about it. But the threat is increasing, and Canada appears to be virtually defenseless. The RCMP and CSIS sources I cited in this book say transnational cartels are increasingly setting up in Canada because the country has become a weak link in international law enforcement. That's the point that Gary Clement made when I interviewed him about the explosion of growth in Iranian underground hawalas in Toronto. Canada is showing itself to be a weak link, he said, because what we are seeing in Toronto is identical to the underground banking we are seeing on the West Coast with money laundering and how it relates to the regime in China. And in Toronto, it relates to the regime in Iran. And Calvin Krusty advanced the same argument in his Cullen Commission testimony in March of 2021. He described how the world's most powerful narcos, Chinese triads, Mexican and Colombian cartels, and Middle Eastern narco-terror operatives have cooperated to take over China's criminal economy. Vancouver has become a high-tech hub for state-sponsored crime facilitated by a proliferation of encryption technology companies, servicing gangsters and spies, Krusty told Commissioner Cullen. Yet Canada is stuck in a 1960s legal framework. The RCMP can't fight transnational crime with Australia, the UK, and the US because Canadian Canadian police have difficulties in sharing sensitive intelligence with allies using international informants and police agents, and getting phone wiretaps approved. Krusty gave a few stunning examples. After 2010, Colombian police informed him they were extremely concerned that Latin American narcos were moving incredible amounts of drug money through a Chinese triad and leader in Vancouver. This was years before the e-pirate investigation. RCMP mounted a big probe but the triad money launderers simply shut down operations, Krusty said. He testified that he he suspects a leak in the RCMP's leadership could have compromised this crucial investigation. Another source inside the probe of Latin American cartels, Hezbollah and Chinese underground banks, which was codenamed Project Scrapyard, told me Krusty's suspicion is likely accurate. It's believed someone in the RCMP's brain trust was destroying probes of narcos from 2012, the source said. In his testimony, Krusty explained how the major Mexican cartels have set up in Vancouver since 2010 while police watch, almost powerless because of Canada's welcoming laws. For example, when the DEA informed RCMP that El Chapo had elite Sinaloa cartel operatives working in Vancouver, Krusty's legal team rushed to write the court applications needed to secure wiretap warrants. Australian federal police can get approvals to wiretap transnational narcos in several days, Krusty said. And US police can go up on a narco phone line within a week. And but after seven months in Canada, the RCMP could not get court approvals to tap the Sinaloa cartel's communications in Vancouver. In a nutshell, Krusty testified this is why Vancouver has become one of the most one of the world's most infiltrated narco money laundering and foreign intelligence hubs and why Canada's political and financial institutions are at grave risk of corruption. He pointed directly at BC government casinos and the RCMP's knowledge of massive floods of $20 bills pouring into River Rock after 2010 to prove his point. After all, Calvin Crusty's was on Mary Baxter's integrated proceeds of crime team. The unit that started the probe, Paul King's of Hawking Jin's gang at the Richmond Casino in 2010. This was before Brass and Ottawa shut the unit down in 2012 amidst complaints about Baxter by Rich Coleman and a lack of foresight by RCMP leaders in Ottawa. When Crusty's Federal Organized Crime Unit launched an e-pirate in 2015, he found the problem was much worse. He suggested that people up high in Canadian federal and provincial governments knew how bad it was and they were responsible we are moving to cor- we are moving to corruption by having this illicit money moving through our financial systems and our casinos and our regulatory people having oversight of that and ministers offices knowing this cross testified and i was concerned from 2012 to 2015 what has changed why continue to take this money because it was somehow obvious to everybody in 2012 that the money was illicitly generated so I thought the public deserved to know, and everyone deserved to have the transparency of the police. Well, what the police were seeing. I knew, although Krusty didn't explicitly say it, he was talking about his unit's plans to hold a press conference after they busted Silver International and Jen's underground casinos in October of 2015. But for some reason, decisions were made among senior government and police officials, and Krusty's press conference was canceled. And yet again. After I exposed the e pirate raids for the Vancouver Sun in September 2017, the RCMP planned a press conference. Krusty and his colleagues wanted the public to know how deep the rot was in BC casinos and how transnational gangs were using BC's economy to traffic fentanyl and launder the proceeds. But again, the press conference was shut down. Powerful people decided the public should be kept in the dark. And so, In this book, I have tried to shine a light on this roiling pit of vipers. I have tried to show the public what police in Canada know but can't say. The problem is big and it's complex. How can Canada, a country almost completely naive about the reach of state-sponsored crime networks and narcos with power equals to states, fight back? Ottawa will need to change national security and foreign interference and criminal prosecution laws. And the RCMP will have to start targeting Beijing's United Front hostili- <laughs> holistically. Excuse me, because there's a hash in there. They need to start targeting start targeting United Front holistically. The RCMP and CSIS need political support and funding to go after the politically connected bosses of men like Paul King Jin. Jin himself claimed to be an e-pirate investigator or claimed to e-pirate investigators that he was extremely connected to Beijing. There is no reason to doubt him. He has mines and factories in China. Jin's boxing gym in Richmond is connected Oh my god. It's connected to China's Belt and Road project. Elite CCP figures in Vancouver gathered at the facility frequently. Meanwhile, RCMP and CSIS watch and wait. Canada lacks the legal framework to cast a net over state-sponsored crime. Federal prosecutors need to start making international cases like their counterparts in other Five Eyes countries. Australia is leading by example by facing harsh backlash from Beijing. Ottawa needs to start carrying its weight. But this will be very heavily lifting, sources say, because Xi Jinping's United Front has penetrated Canada deeply. The tentacles of this thing? We are not talking about an emerging crime problem, a source said. This is 30 years of a crime trend that has entrenched itself into our upper levels of Canadian society. It is frightening, the connectivity to our business elites and quarters of power in Ottawa. It will take a long time to turn the tide. Okay, and after this, it's just some acknowledgments. So I'm going to open the phone lines for people who would like to comment on what we just read. So it's a summary of the findings of the entire book in the afterword, written by Sam Cooper, investigative reporter for globalnews.ca. And boy, did we learn so much. Um, So I'm prepared to take callers. But anybody like to call in and provide any comments before I start rattling off about uh, narco cartels in Mexico using Vancouver as their bank? Anyone? <laughs> okay, so we have a real problem. You know, we have a border situation where people are coming over. In droves, you know they're now they're just dying in trucks because there's somebody clearly psychotic who doesn't understand the necessity of of keeping people alive when you're transiting them uh, in a hot truck and then you know we have people who who make money from that, and those are the the Mexican cartels like like n p m g you know we have transnational criminal delegations or designations for sanctions. Uh, we have sanctions available in the State Department. There's stuff that can be done um, at that level with the U.S. Treasury and uh, Fintrack. And I'm I'm worried and wondering why our government isn't doing more to censure Canada. I'm wondering why our government isn't doing more to censure Beijing. I'm wondering why our government isn't doing more to censure Mexico or take things from them for this crime of fentanyl distribution across our borders and then deliberately flooding our our mainland or like our, our continental U.S. with people for profit. So that the cartels will profit because this wouldn't be happening. They're trying to get as many people as they can over the border because it's eight to ten thousand dollars per head. The people who died in that truck uh were had eight to ten thousand dollars on each of their heads. Okay, but they, they ended up dead in a truck. So once they were over the border and they got their money, that's all that mattered. So, I worry that, okay, they got their money the The cartels get their money, you know, and it comes from cash or or whatever denominations that are are given them. but it in this final afterward, it says that the Mexican cartels are not really not really charged because there's a state national security agenda driven by China to literally destroy or erode the western the Western culture it's, it's' to commit a warlike act against the United States and Canada. Um, this is a book based on what's happening in Canada, but it absolutely impacts what's going on in Seattle, San Francisco, and los angeles, Las Vegas and into Texas at the border. So I'm encouraging anyone who wants to call in and comment about this at all. This is a completely damning uh, forensic account, and it went on and on and on and on and on. There may even be a few more acknowledgments and and essays that could be read with this this book. Um, But we are in Fourth of July weekend. So, does anybody, Blotty, do you want to call in? Anyone? Going once. Going twice. Okay, we're not going to take any (laughs) calls. I mean, we enabled calls for tonight, so you can call in. I just want you to know that. I think Lance was trying to call in earlier. See here. I'm going to invite
0: you to speak, Lance.
1: Okay. Is there any technical difficulty with anybody calling in? It just, sometimes there's some issues with the with the calling.
0: <laughs> Is that what's going on?
1: Yeah, I was doing your. I was performing a reading. Oh, so I mean, there's. Could someone put it in the comments section if there's technical issues with you calling in? 100%, 100%. Okay. All right. Well, I guess we're just gonna have to call it. Oh, there he is, free Assange! Yay! Free Assange, indeed. Did you know the Panama Papers was was cited like proliferately throughout this when he started working on uh, his documentation for the United Front Group? Go ahead. No, Julian Assange uh, works for WikiLeaks, and WikiLeaks uh, produced the, the Panama Papers. Yeah, well, United Front was the was the group. That's the CCP uh, consular um, entities inside China that kind of marbled them th- themselves through uh, Chinese nonprofit societies, but also engaged in um kind of live espionage if you will. Using using the gang's
0: whatever you wanna say whatever you wanna say. <laughs> I mean, can you think of anything specific? Like like give me like give me a for instance. As a source. So it's it's basically news laundering. Okay, so, so do you think it's China based or is it is it some other state? I don't know, that's non specific though. That's non specific.
1: Well, that's usually called sovereignty you know like national sovereignty where you you observe like the laws of the land and and borders and, and th- those are the conventions go ahead is that is that your your policy like is that what you you would go with if you were in power or do you oh well I mean I can understand why you why you would think that but you know the law of the people that's not what we agree to you know that's not what we agree to there's a structure of government and when the laws are broken and, and things are improper that's corruption So what you were speaking of is actually
0: corruption.
1: Well, I mean the law of the people does exist. It's that the, there are certain bodies active in the wheels of the state that don't observe it. Um, for instance, in communism, in revolutionary uh, warfare, they don't observe our laws. That's, that's part of anarcho-communism and leftist uh, dialect, okay? They don't recognize the laws of the state that they either are at war with, or they are in direct combat with. Meaning, um, at a, at a smaller scale, you know, uh, a a a partisan structure like a like a socialist worker party or the communist party. That is not a, a large body that you know they are kind of like a de- democratic process uh, a professional representation of the communist um political body, right? In the formal political structure, okay? In in China, that's all there is. There's only one party. You are, are either in it or you're not in it. It is completely totalitarian and uh and the laws are are not necess- they are laws, but you know, they don't recognize the laws of other states, meaning like they openly and flagrantly violate the laws of the United States, of Canada, of other states that they are trying to invade and steal from. They are thieves. Okay, I am talking specifically of the Chinese state, the P the PRC, okay? Okay, I, I have my own criticisms of my own government, but, you know, in this particular instance, I'm feeling a little defensive uh, towards my own nation-state because, okay, because there I, I do have a stake in what happens. If China is allowed to prevail in an anti-democracy, okay, where I get no vote... I get no say in what happens to the government. I... No, no, dude, it would not be free. Nothing in communism is free. It's on the back of slaves who happen to be in there. Okay? Communism
0: is slavery. Are you a communist?
1: Okay, well... Looks like he's his mic is gone. Okay, if I must know your your mic was
0: off, are you a communist?
1: You're an anarchist. Okay. Well, the, in anarchy, you know, between you and me and everybody else who is in the room, um they don't observe the laws. So, they don't really care necessarily to perform ob- obeisance or compliance towards those laws, okay well I mean if if statehood is a religion, I'm not it's not my religion I don't I don't worship the state.
0: They are a super totalitarian evil dude. they're bringing in fentanyl. Are you an American national? No, I'm not. But I I mean, if you're going to criticize my country, I want to know if you live here and are a citizen. OK, are you an American citizen, dude? It's not hard. Just yes or no.
1: I don't, I don't know. You're not, you're not answering my question because you don't want to be,
0: well, I mean, it was an answer.
1: It wasn't, a, it was a circuitous answer that, that gave no, no statehood, that in, indicated no statehood. So I'm going to treat you like a non-American. That's exactly what I'm going to do. i am going to treat you like a. a non- you're, i am going to treat yeah, you like a, I'm going to treat you like a non-American dude, because you didn't indicate that you were. No, nobody's showing anybody papers right now. This is a conversation so that I have a reference or frame of what statehood that you originate from. So that if you're going to be anti-American against your own state, at least we're at least.
0: Well, I mean, I, I get an accent. You know, Blotty has an accent as well. It doesn't matter. I don't even know where your accent is from, dude. It does matter. It matters right now because this is 4th of July weekend and you were trying to attack my country on my program.
1: Okay, I've got it right here on my desk. Right here. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of the people to peaceably assemble, or to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That is...
0: Well, I mean, I don't I don't know what you're you're really trying to say here, man. I don't other than <coughs> then You Okay, you're American. See, that was not hard, man. You could we could have done this 10 minutes ago.
1: You Yes, you can criticize your country, but it makes sense that you know if you're if you're an American, you can you can air your grievances. But you know if you're Iranian and on the program and you're like airing your grievances at America, it does have a different tone. I'm just saying, it's just totally different. You know, you, you're gonna have Iranian grievances against my
0: country versus.
1: No, they don't do. They don't run the world. That that is a misnomer. It's not a fact. It is not a fact. They really ask es- it's an aspirational question. I can't really answer it for the You know what? I'm not going to take this this uh, assault. I'm not going to take this assault anywhere. Does anybody else want to come up here and talk to me like like you know, like normal? <laughs> Respectful. Like as I think that guy has different personalities and he comes up on here and he decides that, you know, I'm someone I'm not, I guess. Um Lance, did you I'm gonna try to make you a speaker. Five to six. Well, I'm not going to go on and on and on about this, but I did want to indicate that there are important people that are cited in this book, and among them is is Justin Trudeau. Justin Trudeau is carrying the water indirectly or directly of the CCP because their policy through the covid pandemic was to silence people who did not toe the line of ccp rhetoric coming out of beijing and it is confirmed through the, the final chapters of this book that they wanted to organize to a a a gathering of all the ppe so that it, there would be an engineered scarcity of the materials, and these are things you're not allowed to say. You weren't, it was considered a conspiracy theory to say that, you know, China was doing anything wrong, that the counter-China narrative, you know, and then they came up that, you know, that if you say anything about, you know, the Chinese virus or the, the fact that the, the, the disease came from China... And there were very important, you know, ley lines about flying military athletes in a cleared out city back to Canada. It was COVID was rolling around in Canada before the United States ever got one case. And I was in the city or in the in the region. I was like Seattle had its first case. Nationwide, recognized the coronavirus, okay, and that's like six hours south of Vancouver, okay. Kirkland had the first outbreak, and I lived in that city. And one of these little enclave um, businesses, it, it could have been a shell corporation or something, but it was a very bizarre situation. And I mentioned it once on on the unsan- on the sanctioned citizen when I was living. still living in in Washington state. So I went into this hotel just to get some Chinese food. I was trying it out. They're like, it's healthy. Come get it. I'm like, okay, I'm down. I'm going to go get some Chinese food. That's a pretty normal thing to do. And so I did it. And so I went in there and it was not a normal situation. The lights were kind of dimmed all the way. The businesses were shuttered at like noon, like there were like three like businesses. Um it was a hotel that seemed to be hosting uh um, like ancient family artifacts from Wuhan. There was a giant eight thousand year old family ancestral gong. From Wuhan province. And I will never forget the day that I saw that thing because I was like, this is very, very significant. Somebody in the CCP or somebody who has family or relatives from the party is running this place. So it occurred to me at that moment that the Chinese Communist Party or their emissaries or high persons, persons of high dignitaries, that sort of thing, had businesses um, in Western Washington. And that was why, similarly, things that were said about the Chinese state or anything like like that that would go on, people would try to shut you up. They would not acknowledge the things that you were saying. Sometimes you would be called racist. Just, you know, it was kind of an untouchable situation in many constraints. So what else can I say? Um, I hope that guy does not come back on my program. I'm going to try to talk to Charlie Weiser about getting that guy banned because he's awful. <laughs> I think he shows up to my Saturday program as well. So, um, anyways, this kept happening, all right? These are the kinds of things that kept happening. I would go to – I started getting involved in the Hong Kong events after I noticed heavily that um, they were getting involved with healthcare enterprises. So I said, you know what? Screw this. I'm just going to start getting involved. So I started actively supporting Hong Kong protests. In in Western Washington, just to stick it to them. I had no other means. Like it's not like I'm going to get an invite to to you know from my own government, the local government, to 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 speak out a, about the problems that are happening. They didn't care. They were part of it. So I that's when I started getting involved in um anti-authoritarian CCP activity. That's what I started doing because I had no other means to to kind of stick it to them. But what I learned from that was that they had operatives that would show up to the protests to heckle the Chinese, uh, the former Chinese citizens, like people from Taiwan, people from Tibet, people from um, other places in China that had come. And they were in support of the Taiwanese state. In Taiwanese statehood. I learned about Taiwanese statehood. And then I also learned um, that there were Canadian citizens who showed up to the protest to support us because they knew what was going on in Vancouver. And that's the missing link. I didn't know any of this before I would say fall of last year. But when, as soon as I got that book, man, Oh, my God, all the lights started turning on. And then the more I read into this book, the more vital it became to me that the stuff that is happening here in Texas will not stop unless we can close down their banks in Vancouver and through through Canada. Their political establishment has to be centered. It has to be stopped in some way because – it's also a national security issue for us as well. They closed down the Houston consulate because it was a national security risk. Risk, sorry. And um, they also... Um, you know, they should be doing more to, to censure, you know, narco-leftist activity in the Pacific Northwest. But the local governments at the time of covid also dissolved or kind of like turned down uh police enforcement and law enforcement over George Floyd and i believe that that was actually a leftist engineered attack on our system it was very complex but i think that it had had parity like it wasn't china but there was coordination between the narco leftists that are in the west coast that are benefiting from the the drug economy at both borders from the chinese drug economy in canada and the mexican drug e- economy in the southland so those people were like okay we are going to make it legal to do crime somehow we're going to make either crime unpunishable or we're going to make cops non-enforcement people. So that was the agenda with George Floyd and how that blew up. Everybody was was in this castigation false castigation guilt. I see it really clearly in hindsight. It was a false sense of of castigation because our culture had risen above and become A much better human rights vehicle than any other state globally around the world for recognizing anti discrimination. But what we got after COVID or during COVID was counter discrimination, and that's never been legal in the United States ever. So somehow, anti-discrimination or non-discrimination policy became counter-discrimination policy against US nationals against uh law enforcement and singled out white nationals exclusively and then anybody who had families with them and also people who agreed with their politics so that kind of rounded up almost everyone who was American. So, and then who wasn't a leftist? Normies. War on the Normies took place. And then they went after the the school system. And then, and, and none of this was okay to say. It's, it was not okay to challenge it or to notice that it was wrong. Um and it was becoming like 1984 i mean it was just kind of raining shit it was a shit parade and it was not it was not okay so i think if it wasn't the ccp exclusively it was definitely a coordination between organized leftists on the west coast who were funded by drugs and drug activities in the cartels because they don't recognize our laws okay the laws are bad. Just like that guy who got up here, Mr. free Assange. I'm going to try to do my best to, like, get rid of that guy. Because I'll bet his money comes from drugs. And they don't want their income capped. They don't want the government involved because the government has criminalized their business. Okay? And, you know, they would legalize drugs, but that would not... That would not necessarily, you know, serve their, their political ends. Their political ends are to take down the American system architecture. And you don't owe them anything. You don't owe them compliance. You don't owe them a conversation necessarily. You don't owe them anything. Okay? They are they are hostile. They are trying to take out your country. <laughs> okay. And you know when someone is like openly hostile to your interests, kind of like the guy who called it. Um, then you don't really you don't
0: really owe them very much, So,
1: <laughs> so um, if anybody wants to comment or kind of the know specific NGOs, and that was twenty two minutes ago. So which NGOs are you talking about? He was talking about UNICEF and Belling Cat. It's not something I'm familiar with. Does anybody have anything to add to that? No. Looks like it's all silent on the front. So, alright, I'm gonna leave it there. But the whole point of the unsanctioned citizen is to be able to say Okay, he's oh Joseph, four seconds ago he says, You've been studying the border. Yes. And studying the border is important. Uh I have not just been studying the border. I have people who live there, I have family there, and they're always telling me stuff. So there is some some uh live reports of of reality there. And, um, you know, things have changed over the years. When drug cartels get rich, things change. Um, I haven't really followed up Phil. Phil Drake. There's a guy who really deserves his own time on the program. (laughs) He got kicked off of of his farm. His wife's farm. Intergenerational farm. Uh, You know, for all intents and purposes, a a Latin American-owned business, you know, Hispanic business, doing farming in South Texas for generations, got kicked off by a bunch of freaking narcos in Edinburgh. And uh, so they're still there. The farm is still there, but they are in, in South Carolina campaigning to try to make this a national issue so that people understand that this is happening in America. So if I had one thing to do on my to-do list it would be to talk to Sam Cooper at some point and tell him about this program called Hemisphere. Hemisphere is a DEA program that captured all all activity of all cell phones. In some way, and it, and it exceeded. It was just this obscure program that exceeded the the capacity of even Prism and the you know wild Panopticon that that Ed, Edward Snowden had. But the DEA had a a a thin thread, kind of like a thin thread program called Hemisphere, and they have evidence. You know of of crimes and recordings of of cellular calls all over the world. Now the Phantom Secure is kind of an interesting issue because they were using encrypted devices and an encrypted um, maybe throwaway cells to perform to perform their businesses. So I'd have to look deeper into the whole ePirate situation, but. I'm sure at the beginning in the 1990s when, you know, cell phone use was scant, because he reached really far back in in the time capsule to, like, to the 1990s. And Hemisphere has been around since people have had cell phones. So there was a time in cell phone development when, you know, the only people who had it were super rich people. Like the people in the, the convertibles... With the, like, huge brick phones with the, you know, high-extension cords. And they had to charge their, their car phones. It was the only place – yeah, exactly. So, it was the only place that they could actually have them was in their cars. So, so it, the technology evolved over time. But before, it was, like, widespread and, and, a, and a mobile phone was in the hands of every single person in the 2000s. There was a sandwich in there where, you know, I think low-level drug dealers were using beepers, um, but I think organizers or are, are the principals of these drugs, drug people, were probably using cell phones. So it would be interesting because what I understand about classified information or even stuff that just gets thrown into a, a time capsule is that, you can get it's not it doesn't stay classified forever like it'll stay classified for 20 years or 15 years or you know there there is a time limit so you have to know what the rules are um and I learned this from Jason Leopold who is a basically what <laughs> self-described FOIA terrorist that's the Freedom of Information Act uh, he's also a, a really great investigative journalist but he gets documents and digest the documents in order to get the wisdom i don't know what he's really been up to lately um but he is he's had so many great pieces come out because he he just filed and filed and filed and he also transliterated the stuff that came down from um from wikileaks so he was one of the news partners along with Glenn Greenwald and The Intercept, um, all those reporters working on that, uh, People's Guardian, and all those people kind of like, in Der Spiegel, all those folks. They, they did so much work, and I remember my head almost exploding because I was trying to like kind of stay on top of it all, and it was really, really tough to do it. Um, but I, I didn't want to miss anything because – I had to know if I was being surveilled. (laughs) I was just, I just, ah! And it was so much state surveillance. And so the thing that that really kind of, really on top of everything, the thing that really got me at the end of it, I think that that probably traumatized me the worst, was that the NSA had parked these these, uh, back doors throughout the system, and I, I can't remember what what uh, security modality that they had done. It was an advanced persistent threat model, okay? And some Chinese hackers basically got in there and used that for the OPM hack and the Equifax hack. But it was it was a vulnerability left open by the NSA. And so the fact that nobody's done anything to that agency or held them to live account for that has always pissed me off a lot um, because, I mean, that agency has really burned the interest of, of domestic American um, information security and in a huge way. I mean, they had one job. They had one job and it was to protect American um information security at large, but they left us to 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 be victimized by our probably largest adversary. And boy did that make me angry. Ooh, <laughs> I'm so angry. Um so I think I'll leave it there. Like I said. The one thing that I would share with Sam Cooper who had my druthers is to tell him to go back and kind of comb through those hemisphere records from, say, maybe the pre-2000s or early 2000s before it got all hinky with the counterterrorism laws. Because I'm I'm sure some of that stuff would be declassified or available to him if he just asked. So... Thank you for joining this this uh, Friday night, July 4th weekend episode. I hope you go get some fireworks and get lit. I know we live in an area where, off of FM 1626, in Austin, in Manchac, we can light fireworks on the other side of the road, and everything is okay, but if we do it on one side of the road, the city of Austin will come for us. So we're down to, like, granular zoning with tape in our own neighborhood. Like, this is Manchac, this is Austin. This is Manchac, this is Austin. And then we're going to blow up fireworks. (laughs) There are five fireworks trailers, like, within, like, a two-block radius. And so everybody's out buying their, like, handheld fireworks. So we're going to get on our helmets and our goggles and just light them up. So I'm really looking forward to that. That and really bad food. That would be amazing. And then no more abortion discussions. Good grief. No more abortion discussions. I I talked to uh, Stephen, Stephen Miller. He's a libertarian guy on Versus Media. He's great. He invited me to come back, and maybe I'll talk to him again. He's like, we're going to be our new libertarian pals. Yay! <laughs> so, um... We'll we'll talk more soon. Um, Come join us. Maybe i got to get another schedule after this. So does anybody want to do another book, or should I just go back to my regular scheduled programming? Have you had an (laughs) – I don't know what that means. Can you add – if you can't call in, um, add a comment. I could go back to my regular scheduled programming both do oh so so Joe citizenson says do both like do do readings and also do regular programming oh my god that's a lot of programming because I also have a Saturday show that um which is um, the a- that AI show which is coming on tomorrow tomorrow we're gonna go there did you know that they have robot babies so this is total AI and and reproductive conception okay so they have they have AI-generated in vitro solutions, so they can find the live sperm with the proper ovum and, they, and AI does it. It joins the correct like live sperm. Like So if you have like three swimmers that actually work, it'll find those swimmers and then isolate them and then put them in the tube with the live ovum that's right <laughs> Sorry, fly flyover man. <laughs> so I mean, this is the science, but an AI-generated robot is doing this in in the lab, okay? And then towards the end, at the beginning, you know, we now have sex robots, and at the tail end of it, if you can't get a baby whatsoever, there are now robot babies. They can make you a robot infant. So. Uh, we're gonna go there everybody wants to go there let's go there because <laughs> we could evade the abortion debate entirely we're like no just let a robot do it <laughs> alright we'll see you guys on Saturday sometime afternoon thanks for joining the unsanctioned citizen podcast
0: thanks for listening before you go hit the subscribe button remember that callers are welcome Subscribers can access unsanctioned citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts, and call-in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.